Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, December 2nd, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. A blast kills at least 15 in northern Afghanistan. The CDC's director is under fire for her Tuskegee syphilis tweet. Five more letter bombs are reported in Spain as nine are killed in fires across Ukraine. A U.S. House committee receives Trump's tax returns. IS acknowledges the leader's death. The EU reportedly threatens a Twitter ban over content moderation. South Africa's president is under pressure over a Farmgate scandal. 2,000 have allegedly been killed fighting Myanmar's junta. A Hong Kong protester shot by police in 2019 is jailed for six years. The UN seeks a record $51 billion in aid for 2023. And Elon Musk's new- and Elon Musk's is ready for human testing. In today's top story, a madrasa blast kills at least 15 in northern Afghanistan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, The Washington Post, ABC, Fox News, and the Kama Press News Agency. On Wednesday, Imdadullah Mohajir, spokesman for Afghanistan's northern province of Samangan, stated that several students are among at least 15 people killed, while some other 20 were wounded in a bomb blast at a religious school in the provincial capital, Ayabak. A source of Samangan told BBC News that the majority of those killed are believed to be children aged 9 to 15, with a doctor at the local hospital adding that some patients with critical injuries were transferred to hospitals in Mazar-e-Sharif for better treatment. The explosion occurred during midday prayers at the Al-Jihad Madrasa, which operates in the building of a former training college for teachers, now converted into a seminary following a Taliban-issued decree last spring. A video that the Taliban distributed to media outlets apparently shows the site of the explosion with debris on the floor, while sirens can be heard in the background and men, some of them armed, move through the hall to inspect the area. The Taliban's permanent representative of Afghanistan to the UN, Suhail Shaheen, alleges that the Islamic State, or IS, is behind this incident, although no one has yet claimed responsibility. The security situation in Afghanistan has been volatile since the Taliban takeover, with many countries in the international community expressing concerns that terrorism could rise again. All right, those were the facts on this tragic story. On this show, we separate the spin from the facts. So let's start with the pro-establishment narrative spin from the national interest. Since the Taliban took over, Afghanistan has increasingly descended into chaos, The looming humanitarian catastrophe and economic collapse provide the perfect breeding ground for terrorist groups, not only posing a growing threat to innocent Afghans, but also targeting the international community. To further prevent destabilization, a UN peacekeeping force is required to promote a peace process among all Afghans. And here's the establishment critical narrative from The Washington Post. It's short-sighted only to blame the Taliban for escalating violence when the country was already descending into anarchy and the Islamic State was on the rise before the U.S. withdrawal. This was also fostered because Washington never developed a coherent political and economic strategy for Afghanistan, 
With international aid funds now being cut and the U.S. freezing billions in Afghan assets, the situation will only worsen due to Western failures. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This one says there's a 50% chance that the U.S. will reopen its embassy in Kabul by December of 2027. I I met an Afghan woman with her friends at the playground where my kids were, Mm. uh, and we were talking about, you know, work and life. And um, she said they, you know, they cook three whole meals a day every day uh, for the full family. And that's a big family. So she was uh, very grateful for Walmart and Amazon Prime. (laughs) Wow, that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's a very nice lady. The CDC's director is under fire for a Tuskegee syphilis study tweet. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsweek, the Equal Justice Initiative, Black Entertainment Television, and the Daily Caller. U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, director Rochelle Walensky stirred controversy on Wednesday when she referred in a tweet to the Tuskegee syphilis study as a sacrifice from black men. The CDC held an event acknowledging the 50th anniversary of the end of the study in which 600 African-American men, 399 of whom had syphilis, were deceived into participating in an experiment that observed the progression of the infection if left untreated. The United States Public Health Service, or USPHS, held the experiment from 1932 to 1972. Participants were told they would be treated for bad blood while only being administered iron tonic and aspirin. Following the establishment of penicillin as a cure for syphilis in 1947, researchers withheld the treatment from the participants, leading to 128 deaths. Additionally, 40 wives were infected and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. A 2017 study from Stanford and the University of Tennessee revealed a correlation between the study's disclosure and medical mistrust among African-American men. Walensky has yet to delete the tweet or issue a statement regarding the controversy. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We have several spins emerging on the matter. The left narrative comes from Newsweek. Institutional racism is on display yet again as the CDC refuses to own up to its legacy and continues to target African Americans. The U.S. government sanctioned the murders of black men in the Tuskegee experiments and has done nothing to atone for its actions. And there's a right narrative from Red State. The CDC is once again proving that it is a nefarious organization that cannot be trusted or respected. From the Tuskegee syphilis study to the botched handling of COVID, it continues to act against the interests of people's health and lacks all accountability. We've also got a pro-establishment narrative from Twitter. While carelessly worded, Walensky's post was a clear attempt to acknowledge the atrocity of the study, as the organization should. It undoubtedly missed the mark, but the tweet doesn't represent the CDC as a whole. I think if if I ever if I was a public figure and I really put my tweet in my mouth like like this, I think <laughs> I would leave it up because it looks like you're trying to cover up what you did and everyone's going to know that you did it at this point. We're reporting on it. Everyone's yeah. reporting on it. I'm so aware- I think I would leave it up as a memorial to my folly and then do something to do something about it. Well, that's that's pretty brave of you and pretty um I'm pretty like fair of you, I think. 
I mean, I don't um, like to use the word hero too often, but it, it gets thrown around. But, you know, I'll, I'll take it. And turning our heads to Europe, five more letter bombs are reported in Spain and nine are killed in fires across Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, MSN, Pravda, CBC, Ukraine Forum, and the Donetsk News Agency. On Thursday, five other sites across Spain, including the U.S. Embassy in Madrid, were reported to have been targeted by letter bombs. Though some have speculated they may be linked to Russia, Spain's deputy interior minister said on Thursday that the packages likely originated from within the country, in apparent contradiction to earlier statements. Russia has condemned the attacks, and an investigation is ongoing. A day earlier, a letter bomb detonated at Ukraine's embassy in Madrid, leaving a Ukrainian official with minor injuries. A second was discovered at a weapons manufacturer in Zargoza, a firm that's reportedly made weapons that the Spanish government has delivered to Ukraine. Meanwhile, as the start of December marked the beginning of winter in the meteorological calendar, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said that an estimated 6 million households remain without electricity. He said Kiev and its wider region, as well as the regions of Venetia, Lviv, Odessa, Melnitsky, and Cherkasy were the worst affected. On Wednesday, Ukraine's state emergency service said there had been an increase in the amount of fires being reported. The news came as many struggled to keep their homes warm. Only in the last day, there were 131 fires in Ukraine, 106 of them in the residential sector. Nine people died, eight were injured, the service said. A day earlier at a meeting between G7 countries and NATO, the U.S. announced a $53 million aid package intended to help restore Ukraine's energy infrastructure. The package will include distribution transformers, circuit breakers, surge arresters, disconnectors, and vehicles, according to reports. On the ground, renewed Russian attacks were reported in Donetsk, Sumy, Kherson, Zavarycha, and Dnipropetrovsk. Ukrainian officials said one civilian was killed and two more were injured in the Kherson region, while three civilians were injured in Donetsk. One person was injured in Zaporizhia. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, reported that two civilians were injured in Ukrainian attacks in the last 24 hours, while a further civilian who was injured the day before died of his injuries on Wednesday. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this long-running story provided by CNBC. Russia's deliberate targeting of energy infrastructure unnecessarily increasing the suffering of civilians amounts to war crimes. This continuing Russian barbarity must be confronted. The pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. Attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure are a direct consequence of the failure of the country's leadership to meaningfully engage in peace talks and thinking they can defeat Russia on the battlefield. These attacks will stop once a more sober position is reached. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 1% chance that NATO will declare a no-fly zone anywhere in Ukraine before the year 2023, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Honestly, if I was a public figure of any kind, of any note whatsoever... I would do the thing where I get my mail sent to like my accountant, I think, and then they can open it, pay whatever bills there are, and then send me the stuff. I think I would do that. Yeah. And then so, that you know, to protect your accountant, to let them know that my mail always goes to my accountant. And then my accountant would have to hire an accountant probably to get my mail sent to them because 
now they'd that be I've said scared. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. House Committee receives Trump's tax returns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, CBS News, Daily Caller, and Reuters. The U.S. Department of the Treasury on Wednesday confirmed it had turned over former President Trump's tax returns from 2015 to 2020 to the House Ways and Means Committee following a years-long battle to get them released. The tax return battle dates back to 2019 when the House Oversight Committee subpoenaed the accounting firm Mazars USA after former Trump attorney Michael Cohen testified under oath alleging Trump's habit of misrepresenting his net worth. Trump, who vowed to fight Congress tooth and nail on this matter, had previously broken with modern precedent by refusing to make his tax returns public. A three-judge federal appeals panel this year rejected Trump's claims that the request for his tax information was unconstitutional. Late last month, Trump asked the Supreme Court to intervene. It decided to give the House Ways and Means Committee access to Trump's tax returns instead. Representative Richard Neal, Democrat of Massachusetts, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, has said Congress needs the returns to check if Trump and his companies complied with tax laws and if the Internal Revenue Service audit of Trump was conducted fully and appropriately. Democrats in Congress have little time to work with the documents because Republicans will take the majority in the House next month. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We've got two political spins on this matter. Of course, the Democratic narrative, and it's provided by CNN. Trump has dragged this out long enough, even as several judges, many appointed by Republicans, have ruled against him even before the Supreme Court decision. It's time to solve the mystery of why he fought so hard to keep his tax returns from public view. If he's not hiding anything, he shouldn't worry about what Congress will find. And there's a pro-Trump narrative from Daily Wire. This decision is an unprecedented violation of Trump's privacy rights, and the committee's reasoning is preposterous. There's very little time for Democrats to make any legal reforms based on what they're going to read in the returns before Republicans take control of the House. The conservative majority Supreme Court should have stuck with Justice Roberts' original rejection. In our next story, the Islamic State acknowledges its leader's death. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CENTCOM, CNN, ABC, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Abu Omar al-Muhajir, a spokesman for the Islamic State Group, or IS, announced Wednesday that its Iraqi leader Abu Hassan al-Hashimi al-Kirashi has been killed in battle without providing further details on the date or the circumstances of his death. The U.S. Central Command confirmed the death on Wednesday with spokesman Colonel Joe Buccino stating that it took place in mid-October when the Free Syrian Army carried out an operation in Syria's Dara province. The deceased leader who took over the group's leadership last March following the death of Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Karashi in a U.S. military operation in the northeast of Syria will be succeeded by, quote, old fighter Abu al-Hussein al-Husayni al-Karashi. None of the al-Karashi are believed to be related, as this isn't their real last name, but rather a nom de guerre derived from Islam's prophet Muhammad Quraysh tribe, from which IS claims its leaders hail. IS used to rule a self-proclaimed caliphate traversing the border between Iraq and Syria at its apex. But an international coalition partnering with local forces pushed it from its last territorial holding in 2019. 
Despite years of military operations designed to crush IS, militants have managed to regroup and have carried out insurgency attacks both in Iraq and Syria, including a prison break in northeastern Syria in January that caused the death of more than 500 people in Hasaka. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Narrative A comes from Voice of America. This is another major blow to IS after Abu Hassan's predecessor and several other IS officials were also killed over the past eight months. And even as IS continues to carry out deadly attacks, its recent successes show one thing above all. Thanks to U.S. perseverance in its fight against terrorism, this group is now only a shadow of the organization that once horrified the world. And Narrative B comes from the Crisis Group. This is a setback for IS, but it would be a mistake to assume that this signals the end of the jihadist group. IS is now operating a network of autonomous cells and has launched a deadly insurgency in the region. All those fighting the jihadists would have to join forces to defeat them, including Kurdish forces, as well as Russia, Turkey, and the Syrian government. This is a volatile situation. And brace yourself, we have another narrative, Narrative C, coming from the Jerusalem Post. This is undoubtedly another major blow to IS, but now Turkish President Erdogan's military actions in Syria, which are also motivated by domestic politics, not only endanger U.S. personnel, but threaten to strengthen IS by undermining Western-backed and Kurdish-dominated Syrian democratic forces. Washington and its partners must increase pressure on Ankara to prevent a resurgence of IS in Syria. According to a report, the EU threatens a Twitter ban over content moderation. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, Financial Times, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. On Wednesday, EU Commissioner for Digital Policy Terry Breton warned Elon Musk that Twitter must enforce policies to protect users from hate speech, misinformation, and other harmful content, or risk violating new rules that would lead to fines or even a ban. In a video meeting with Musk, Breton reportedly said that Twitter must adhere to EU regulations, such as ditching an arbitrary approach to reinstating banned users and agreeing to an extensive independent audit of the platform by next year. Breton added, Twitter will have to implement transparent user policies, significantly reinforce content moderation and protect freedom of speech, tackle disinformation with resolve and limit targeted advertising. Failure to do so can result in a fine of 6% of the company's annual revenue. Musk reportedly responded by calling the Digital Services Act, a policy requiring social media platforms to remove hate speech and ban ads targeting people based on political beliefs, very sensible. He also vowed that Twitter's policies would comply with the applicable laws. Twitter recently said that it still seeks to promote and protect the public conversation, but that it had changed its approach to experimentation by undergoing more public testing. Musk has said that Twitter's policies will focus on de-amplifying violative content. Alongside European regulations, Musk also reportedly risks infringing on Apple and Google's stringent content moderation and data protection policies, which could make accessing Twitter more challenging. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We've got two political spins for you, starting with the left narrative from The Guardian. Musk should heed the EU's warning, as Twitter cannot be allowed to turn into a conspiratorial digital mechanism. The EU is taking the appropriate steps to regulate big tech, which has an ever-growing power over the general public. Simply put, this sort of government control is needed to prevent abuses in the digital world. 
and Breitbart brings the right narrative. The EU is only making these threats to satisfy global elites who hate Musk's championing of free speech. The EU loves censorship and wants to bully him into creating a political echo chamber of so-called acceptable opinions. Hopefully, Musk's agreement that the EU law is sensible doesn't mean he'll bend the knee. We turn to South Africa for the next story, where Ramaphosa's future is in balance over a Farmgate scandal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The New York Times, CNBC, CNN, The Africa Times, and Times Alive. An independent three-person panel appointed by South Africa's National Assembly Speaker, Nosaviwi Mapisa Nkakula, in September, submitted a report to Parliament on Wednesday claiming that President Cyril Ramaphosa may be guilty of a serious violation of the Constitution. This comes after Arthur Fraser, the former head of state security and a political foe of the president, filed a criminal complaint in June alleging that Ramaphosa ordered an off-the-books investigation into the theft of millions of dollars he allegedly stashed at his game farm. The panel concluded that Ramaphosa may have violated anti-corruption laws by failing to report corrupt activities, stressing also that the president must explain the origin of the foreign currency that was stolen. Leader of the opposition party, John Steenhuisen, promptly called for impeachment proceedings in early elections, demanding Ramaphosa offer far better comprehensive explanations than we have been given so far. While it's unlikely that an impeachment would succeed as the ruling African National Congress, or ANC, holds a firm majority, even some ANC members have urged Ramaphosa to resign ahead of a mid-December party meeting to choose its next leader. Presidential spokesman Vincent Maguena stated on Thursday that Ramaphosa has postponed a scheduled address to the nation because he was still processing the report and consulting all options available. Thanks, Melissa, for those facts. Mail-in Guardian brings us Narrative A. This report should be the final nail in the coffin for the Ramaphosa administration, which has been facing major administrative and economic challenges. Having campaigned on fighting corruption and returning to ethical governance, the president must step aside now that he faces potential criminal investigations. He's lost the moral authority to govern South Africa. And the Daily Maverick provides Narrative B. These findings have seriously damaged the president's reputation and the ANC, potentially throwing the party into unprecedented chaos and leaving no good alternatives. But while Ramaphosa staying in power could anger voters ahead of the 2024 elections, staying put seems to be the least bad option amid uncertainties about who would replace him. You ever see Searching for Sugar Man, the uh, documentary? Oh, yeah. That's Whenever I think about South Africa, that's what I think of now. And thinking about how it's crazy that Rodriguez, the sugar man, could have been so, so big in that country, like the number one guy and somehow totally unknown here. Isn't that weird? It's such a strange story. And yet he was such a shy person that it, it kind of makes sense that it went that way for him. And and the 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 medium through which he spoke was pop rock music. It's not like it was some esoteric thing that it just didn't work over here for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, it's it's weird because if you listen to the songs, they're good. It's just as just as good as any other song. Well, it really spoke to the young people of South Africa. Yes. And that, right. It just shows right place, right time. Why did this thing resonate? Had he been born in the time of social media, it would might have been a different story. But, you know, then he might have become a sellout. Who knows? 
Myanmar's shadow government leader says 2,000 are dead fighting the junta. Hear the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Radio Free Asia, the global new light of Myanmar, and the Irrawaddy. The head of Myanmar's Parallel Civilian National Unity Government, or NUG, Dua Lashi La, told the Reuters' next conference on Thursday that at least 2,000 pro-democracy fighters have been killed confronting Myanmar's military junta. He pleaded for allies to provide military assistance. Dua Lashi La claimed that pro-NUG armed groups, known as People's Defense Forces, have killed some 20,000 junta troops, but are outgunned by an army allegedly equipped by China, India, and Russia. He also called for help from the people of Myanmar and countries with humanitarian sense in an interview published on Wednesday, stressing that our resistant soldiers in large numbers do not have enough food, shelter, medicine, and health care and technologies. This comes as General Min Ong Lang, the commander-in-chief of Myanmar's military, received senior Russian defense officials in Napayata on Tuesday to discuss cooperation between the two armed forces, including counterterrorism efforts. The NUG, which was formed in April last year and depends largely on donations from the public to fund its operations, as it doesn't receive material support from the international community, has been designated a terrorist organization by the military junta. Western nations have expressed support for the NUG and sanctioned military commanders and companies, but have argued that the Regional Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, which has a non-interference convention, is best placed to solve the crisis. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We've got an establishment critical narrative written by the Global Times. Regional stakeholders such as ASEAN and China have sought to smooth things over to ensure peace and stability in Myanmar. But Western support for armed resistance and political extremist action have bolstered pro-NUG militants to descend the country onto the brink of a civil war. Myanmar is in chaos, and the NUG's calls for revolution will only make it worse. And we have a pro-establishment narrative from The Diplomat. The UN and ASEAN have tried and failed to change the military junta's bloodthirsty behavior that has caused more than 2,400 civilian deaths and atrocious crimes against humanity since its disastrous coup in February 2021. Since there will be no sustainable peace while this illegitimate, corrupt regime remains in power, it's time for the U.S. and its allies to unequivocally support the popular resistance movement. A Hong Kong protester shot by police in 2019 is jailed for six years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Hong Kong Free Press, Channels TV, Straits Times, and Newsbud. On Wednesday, a Hong Kong man who was shot by police at close range in 2019 was sentenced to six years in jail on three charges, attempting to escape from custody, obstructing a police officer, and attempting to steal an officer's gun. Chao Pak Kwan, who was 21 when he was shot during protests in the Sai Wan Ho, and his co-defendant Wu Tsi Kin have been in custody since they were convicted in August. Chao lost his right kidney and suffered a liver injury during the incident. Video footage showed the officer drawing his gun and pointing it at protesters blocking the road before grappling with a protester and firing at an unarmed Chao. The shooting took place during Hong Kong's citywide protests three years ago, which began in opposition to a proposed extradition bill, 
As of this August, Hong Kong had arrested nearly 10,300 people over the protests and had initiated proceedings or prosecuted approximately 2,900. During sentencing, Judge Adriana Noel C. Ching stated Chow and Wu showed no remorse and that they themselves were responsible for their injuries. Thanks for those facts on this tragic story, Melissa. The Los Angeles Times brings us the anti-China narrative. In the years since the protests against China's increased power over Hong Kong, many freedoms the protesters were fighting for are gone. Making matters worse, China seems to have given up on the protesters, who can't make a life for themselves after they're released from prison. The PRC has ruined these people's lives. The pro-China narrative is provided by the Global Times. Western democracies like the U.S. continue to expose themselves as hypocrites. On the one hand, the U.S. shames and imprisons participants in the January 6th Capitol riots, but Washington encourages dissent and protests in Hong Kong. While Western democracies find their countries struggling, they should be more accepting that China is exploring a different path that has led to remarkable achievements. And we've got another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says that there's a 50% chance that Hong Kong will stop being a special administrative region of China by January of 2045. The UN seeks a record $51 billion in aid for 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Bangkok Post, Forbes, Relief Web, The Arab News, Guardian, and Al Jazeera. On Thursday, the U.N. and its partners launched an appeal for a record $51.5 billion in aid money for 2023, as the Intergovernmental Organization estimates that 339 million people across 68 countries will need some form of emergency assistance next year. Due to the extreme events that occurred in 2022, the U.N. predicts that an extra 65 million people compared to last year will be pushed into crisis amid climate emergencies the war in Ukraine, and the worst global food crisis in modern history. The new estimate means that 1 in 23 people will need help compared to the 1 in 95 in 2015. Next year will be the biggest humanitarian program the world has ever seen, according to the UN's annual Global Humanitarian Overview. According to the UN report, the global goal of ending extreme poverty by 2030 is no longer possible because there are 90 million more people in poverty than previously projected. The job market is also still below pre-pandemic levels as many nations struggle with rising inflation. Meanwhile, 10 countries have individually appealed for more than $1 billion, including Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, Syria, Ukraine, and Yemen. However, donor funding is already under strain as the UN faces the most sizable funding gap to date, with its appeal only about 53% funded in 2022 based on current UN data. Thank you for the facts, Scott. Here are the narrative spins. We start with narrative A, provided by Newsbud. Without adequate funding, the crises we've seen in 2022 will only get worse in 2023. Numerous countries have been hit by deadly droughts and floods, from Pakistan to the Horn of Africa, and the war in Ukraine has turned a part of Europe into a battlefield, creating food insecurity among the world's poorest. It's time to act. Relief Web brings narrative B. Over the last few years, the world has moved from crisis to crisis and funding has failed to keep up. 
While important, money is only one part of the equation. Rather than treating the symptoms, there also needs to be a concerted effort to address the root causes of the globe's emergencies, which capital alone fails to do. And we've got a nerd narrative on this story, stating there's a 19% chance there will be fewer than 375 million in extreme poverty by 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. It's a scary but beautiful picture. This the people there. Yeah. The colors are so. The, I mean, the the clothes they're wearing, and there's a dramatic, almost looks like a matte painting of a sky, and then that bright red yeah. clay or dirt or whatever it is is really right. a and the fish islands. Yeah, yeah. And this this five year old boy is just like, I'm so bored. I know. I I, I have a four year old, and I have nothing but complaint. Like, That's boring. Oh my gosh, this is taking so long. And I agree, it is. Whatever it is, is boring. Imagine yeah. this kid. It's just boring. It's so yeah. boring. It's so I can't not look at my phone. I was watching. Yeah. <laughs> um, when, even when like I watch movies, I reach for my phone now. Even when I'm being entertained, I need to be distracted from my entertainment. It's Isn't sad. that funny? I, I do it's... that too. And to me, it's just like I've got so many tasks to do. You know, yeah. oh, I better okay. Let me do one while I'm watching a movie. Where it's like sometimes okay, I even just like check my important. feeds or whatever. Like, oh, there's a slow spot in this movie. Like, <laughs> uh, it's such a it's such a disrespect to the people that make the movie. You know, like, okay, yeah. the pacing's important. We'll take off the gas. He's gonna walk down the street now. Like, I'll check my phone. Blur. <laughs> <laughs> and our final story for today: Elon Musk's Neuralink is ready for human testing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, the Daily Mail, the Economic Times, and the New York Times. Elon Musk announced on Wednesday that his startup Neuralink Corporation should be ready to test its brain implant technology on humans within the next six months. Neuralink hopes the implant devices will restore vision as well as the ability to move and communicate in people with severe disabilities by decoding brain activity. In the future, Neuralink aims to open facilities where robot surgeons will implant the devices. Neuralink shared a preview of the announcement on its Twitter account ahead of the annual Show and Tell event. The first Show and Tell event for the company in 2020 demonstrated the technology using a pig. Last year's event used a monkey who played a video game with only its mind. Following the live stream, Musk said, We are now confident that the Neuralink device is ready for humans, so timing is a function of working through the FDA approval process. During the event, he stated most of the paperwork has been submitted to begin the approval process, which is expected to conclude in time for testing in the next six months. Some experts have concerns about animal welfare during Neuralink's testing phase. The Physicians' Committee for Responsible Medicine obtained lab notes on the experiments that described several animals repeatedly vomiting, gasping, retching, and had very little interaction with environment or observers. Musk is currently managing several entrepreneurial ventures, including Tesla, his electric vehicle brand, SpaceX, his aerospace company, and social media giant Twitter. Thanks, Melissa. Our last round of Narrative Spins begins with Narrative A, coming from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Musk's futurist vision of humans is dangerous and reckless. Previously, he has been afraid of the idea of deep artificial intelligence. Now he's taking a sharp turn toward the merging of humans and AI. This venture is likely to benefit the privileged at the higher and more professional levels of society, ultimately putting democracy at risk. 
Narrative B is provided by Forbes. Neuralink is a well-funded and legitimate venture, and those with disabilities should follow the company's success closely. The brain implant mission will be transformative for humans on the fronts of both medicine and artificial intelligence. Musk sees a future where the limitations of the human body and the human mind can be overcome to expose the full potential of humanity and propel society forward toward greatness. And wrapping things up, we've got a cynical narrative from The Verge. Musk says he wants to test his brain implants on humans in six months. Don't trust his word. Historically, he has been lousy with deadlines. He previously said he wanted to test in humans in 2022, but that isn't happening. In 2011, he said he wanted to put people in space within three years. And the first manned SpaceX mission didn't occur until the year 2020. His failure to retain qualified staff in important positions doesn't bode well for his six-month goal, so this issue may be farther off in the future than it seems. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, December 2nd, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.